Anonymous was a woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Welcome back, everyone. It is so nice to be back in your in your ears, in your living rooms, on your runs, on your trips to the supermarket if you're outside of Melbourne and you get to go to the supermarket anymore. Welcome, my friends, to the second season of Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I am joined as ever by Astrid Edwards. Hello, Jamila. It is fantastic to be back. It sure is. And we dipped back into your podcast streams over the break between our seasons with a few really special episodes, partly unpacking the Black Lives Matter movement and also looking at why we don't read enough works by women of colour. We will be certainly rectifying that in the season ahead. But if you want to jump back, if you missed those episodes, please do so. They are an absolute delight and they will fill up your bedside table reading stack. Today, Astrid, we are recording this in the middle of Melbourne's stage four lockdown in August. So today, I think the only theme we could possibly consider is solitude. Solitude, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, in season one, we talked about loneliness and we are months on from that and some of us are doing well and some of us are not and we all are feeling this new profound solitude And you and I are both in Melbourne and we are kind of cut off from the rest of Australia. We absolutely are. And while loneliness, I suppose, explores the sadder side of being on your own, solitude can be a good thing sometimes. And I'm not for a second suggesting we're all having a lot of fun down here in Melbourne right now, but often solitude is required for some of our favourite activities, including, of course, reading, which brings me to our very first book discussion of the new season, which is, of course, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Virginia Woolf is a novelist, an essayist, and she was actually the pioneer of the stream of consciousness mode of writing, which is basically where you take your very personal interior thoughts that, you know, exist in that, I don't know, the solitude of our, um, you know, personal brain bubbles and and bring them to the world. Uh, she was born in 1882. She died in 1941. And Jam, she experienced World War One, the Spanish flu, which seems incredibly relevant as we live with COVID-19 this year. She experienced the Great Depression and, of course, the start of World War Two. She experienced mental ill health throughout her life and she did choose to take her own life at the age of 59 by drowning. And her writing, her legacy, her thoughts still appear in pop culture and our university courses and our bookshelves even to this day. We, of course, called our podcast, you know, Anonymous Was a Woman, which is a misquote from Virginia Woolf. And I'm so excited to, you know, be chatting about her and her work again with you today, Jen. I read A Room of One's Own for the first time. I can't remember if it was year 11 or 12, but it was one of those, you know, uh, older teenage years while I was considering my feminism to be fully formed and it absolutely was not. And I remember feeling very clever reading this book. But upon my second read many, many years later at 34, Astrid, I've come across so many just lovely moments and lines in the book 
that aren't the famous ones, right? So like, true. We all know the big ones, but there's a couple of lines. I've just pulled out two of them for you now. One is, yet it seemed absurd, I thought, turning over the evening paper that a man with all this power should be so angry. <laughs> ah, yes. Why are you so angry? Men in the newspapers when you've got all this power to fix it. I love that reflection on the idea of uh, humanity kind of being angry and railing at itself when really humanity has enormous power to do good and to fix many of the problems we bring upon ourselves. <clears throat> Climate change. Another one that really struck me as Wolf being ahead of her times was what is meant by reality it would seem to be something very erratic, very undependable, now to be found in a dusty road, now in a scrap of newspaper in the street, now a daffodil in the sun. And I think for a lot of us, while we have been in this period of solitude, this period of lockdown, what is reality and what's real and what's not and what's virtual and what's not, it it feels really present to me because I I realise so much of my life is now lived in this tiny little computer screen I'm talking to you in now. And sometimes I do kind of go, where's that line between the real world and the virtual world and the world in my head? We are living in a world that, you know, has had so many, uh, you know, technological advances that Virginia Woolf wouldn't have been able to cast forward and imagine. But at the same time, she cast her mind forward a hundred years and she kind of is speaking to us in a room of one's own. And I don't want anyone listening to us to think that, Virginia Woolf is the only feminist and she is a white feminist and a white writer and she, you know, she does not have all of the answers. But I think at this extraordinary point in our history, it's useful to look back and reflect about the writing of a woman who was basically arguing for change in our body politic and in our society in order to afford women a bit of solitude in order to have the advantages that men experience. And she also flashes back a hundred years to the women who came before her. So she's putting herself and us in this long chain of female thinkers who might be able to, you know, continue the work of generational change that we need to kind of, you know, stop all those angry men uh, from taking center stage. Mm. I remember when my grandmother was dying about five years ago, she spoke to me a lot about a period of her childhood when everyone was forced indoors and out of school because of tuberculosis. And she was homeschooling essentially her younger siblings. And she was a really academic kid and she desperately missed school and was angry at how much school she missed. And of course, back then in 2013, I had no idea how incredibly relevant what she was saying to me would be just seven years later. But I remember thinking at the time when she talked to me about that, how gendered her reflections were, you know, she was a girl. So it was her job to be staying at home and looking after children that was expected of her in a way it wasn't expected of her male teenage peers. Right. And yet now we're reading Virginia Woolf, a woman who's much closer to my grandmother's age than she is to mine and in terms of the era she was living. And yet I see a lot of what Virginia Woolf is talking about in my life and the life of my contemporaries right now. Homeschooling, this new um, parental chore that's arrived in coronavirus lockdown is absolutely disproportionately being borne by women. And not only that, and, and I agree with you entirely, Jam, Wolf actually makes that point. You know, when she wrote A Room of One's Own, you know, 90 plus years ago, she makes the point 
that childcare duties prevent women from fully participating in the workforce. And it's still the same. Yeah. And it's amazing how when we get sent back home and we get cut off from the rest of the world, you know, we're living in solitude, essentially. It's just us and our immediate nuclear family. We do revert to these traditional gender roles. And it's women who tend to be the ones who are suddenly doing more of the cleaning, more of the cooking, spending more time with children. There was a fascinating poll that the New York Times wrote up, Astrid, that said nearly half of fathers in America with children under 12 reported spending more time than their spouse doing homeschooling and caring now. And just two to three percent of women who were married to men said the same. Yeah. It's all about perception. <laughs> it is about perception. And I was, I really enjoyed sitting by myself actually and rereading A Room of One's Own. And I'd forgotten that Wolf actually also foreshadows the Bechtel test. You know the Bechtel test. Yes, I do. So that we look at whether or not a film or a text is feminist if two women who are named, appear in a scene together and discuss something that is not a man. So until my reread, uh, and I've obviously forgotten this, this is actually an idea that Wolf paints in A Room of One's Own. She asked the reader to imagine two women actually talking to each other, not about a man, and then she goes further and she asks, she actually thinks of um, uh, William Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, and she imagines if Cleopatra and Octavia, the other woman in the uh, love triangle, were friends and talked to each other, how different Western literature would be if Cleopatra and Octavia, who she names here, you know, with her tongue in cheek, Chloe and Olivia, if Chloe and Olivia actually had a chat that wasn't about Antony. And, you know, that just, that I find that deeply uh, distressing that this has been an idea around for a hundred years, but also beautiful that it was articulated before we even had TV and movies in the way that we do now. Uh, And it just reminds me that, you know, all of the great thinkers and novelists and essayists and feminists of our past, they all still matter. And they're all kind of putting, you know, another brick in the wall that we are trying to, you know, build. And of course, Wolf's reflections aren't all relevant today. And, you know, fair enough, when you were writing 100 years ago, you can't project forwards entirely. One of the, there were two things that really struck me that kind of jarred, I suppose, on my more adult read compared to my 17-year-old self. The first one is that this is absolutely a book about the difficulty women have in finding financial independence. I think the same is true now of young people of all genders. Wealth is so very much accumulated by older generations. Control of capital remains with them despite millennials kind of aging now. Like millennials are grown-ups now, guys. But because of insecure and casualised work and without that safety net of holiday and sick pay, you know, young people are finding it harder to kind of get out in the world and be independent in the same way that their parents did. I mean, most young people don't own a house and a lot of them think they never will. So a lot of young people are choosing to live at home for longer. They're not choosing a room of one's own because that choice is not available to them, whether or not they're men or women. The other thing that really just did bite me the whole way through reading is that Wolf is a little bit classist in this text, isn't she? (laughs) She, um, There was one quote I wrote down where she says, all those who have talent should be given the opportunity to develop and use it and should be allowed to have an income and a room of one's own. And I mean, talent there, what she really means by talent is like rich person, educated talent, right? She thinks that's a prerequisite for financial 
independence. It's almost kind of, there's some anti-working class vibes in this text. Oh, completely. She was not only a woman of her time, but she was a certain type of woman. Um, You know, she was uh, interested in white women's suffrage, obviously, uh, and she benefited from that and advocated for that. She was interested in the plight of writers and creatives and, you know, is angry about the fact that women were left out of Oxbridge, which Oxbridge is, you know, the fictional Oxford and Cambridge mashup uh, and, you know, relegated to underfunded female colleges. So, she, you know, she's got a very particular uh, worldview and, you know, she died before the end of World War Two. She did not experience uh, civil rights as they played out in America in the 20th century. She did not experience the rest of the feminist movement or gay pride or Me Too or Black Lives Matter or the idea of environmental social justice. I mean, you know, the things that occupy us now and should occupy us now were well before Wolf's time. Wolf is kind of considered that, I don't know, that champion of women's equality and feminist voices. And this really is one of the seminal texts. But I also recognise, as we've discussed, there are a whole lot of women writers whose work is just as important to the canon who we don't place the same emphasis on. Any of those whose names you want to throw at us right now, Astrid, my well-read friend? Oh, that is a big question. And I came late to feminism, but the two I would suggest uh, are Angela Davies' Women, Race and Class, which was first published in 1981. Now, that was the year I was born and I first got to that book in 2019. And Angela is a black woman in America and she is really looking at that intersection of class and gender and race. And then, of course, there's Talking Up to the White Woman, which was um, written by Eileen Morton Robinson, first published 20 years ago in 2000. And I have to confess, I only read it in this year, so I'm well behind the party. But Angela and Eileen both wrote phenomenal contributions to the feminist canon that aren't on every university curriculum in first year English class or whatever, where we find a room of one's own. And even though I came to them very late, I recommend Women, Race and Class and Talking Up to the White Woman to everybody listening to this podcast. We are going to mix things up a little bit today. We are discussing solitude and what solitude means to authors. And while we've reflected back on periods of the past when women didn't have perhaps the solitude to read and write as they might have wished, right now during this pandemic, there are women authors all over the world who have suddenly got some space and some time to write. And Astrid and I want to devote just a little bit of time to some of the works that have not been published yet, but that are on the horizon for all of us to inhale, to enjoy, and I suppose to help us make sense of this weird time we're living through now. Astrid, I'm going to go to you first. What are you most looking forward to? Jam, I'm really looking forward to Fire, Flood and Plague, which is going to be published in Australia in December 2020 and it's edited by Sophie Cunningham. Now, this is an anthology of essays, personal reflections uh, from Australian writers who, like me, are currently stuck at home either in isolation or, you know, some form of lockdown. And it's all of the pieces are being written in response to this disaster of a year. Now, 
I'm excited for three reasons. First of all, Sophie Cunningham herself is amazing. She is a fascinating woman. She is one of the founders of the Seller Prize. And in 2019, she was made a member of the Order of Australia for Literature. She's also a beautiful writer in her own right. And I'm in Melbourne. And when I go out for my, you know, one hour of walk a day, I actually walk to Carton Gardens. And Sophie Cunningham has written a book called City of Trees. And she has an essay about this particular tree. And in my time of solitude, I now walk past this tree that Sophie has written an essay about. And honestly, I feel like that tree is my friend now. And every time I walk past, I just think that is the power of words. And that is the power of a good writer to make me feel less alone. And I'm basically visiting a tree, but I don't know. I recommend City of Trees to everybody who's listening to me now. But I guess I'm looking for perspective and guidance. And some of the writers who are going to be published in this they're just the best writers in Australia. I mean, there's Melissa Lukashenko, there's James Bradley, there's Melanie Cheng, there is Nidal Nguyen. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I turn to books when I don't know what to think. Astrid, I'm also excited about this anthology. Tell me, is it a response to the coronavirus pandemic or is it a broader set of thinking about the year that has been or is 2020? You know, I think it's all it's, you know, it's called fire, flood and plague. And of course, Australia started with bushfires in 2020. We have had floods around Australia and the world. And now we do have a plague of biblical proportions. I think that all of the writers are responding in different ways to all of the above, like just to the general, what has happened this year. It feels like a turning point for all of us. So I think it is all of them. And, you know, we all have such a different experience this year, although I would suggest that it's all a bit difficult for everyone as the common thread. So Jam, I've just rattled on, but I know that you also have a collection that you were looking forward to. I am. And I am not a poetry person, Astrid. And so if for everyone listening who's about to turn off, because I'm going to talk about poetry, don't, because that's normally me. And this is my kind of poetry. So Alice Quinn has edited a new collection called Together in a Sudden Strangeness, America's Poets Respond to the pandemic. It's out in ebook already, but it's out in hardcover later in the year. And the best word I've got for this collection and what I've read so far in terms of the samples that have been put out into the world already is that it is, a, it's got a sense of, sense of urgency, poetic urgency. So uh, there are all of these poets who have taken this beautiful, meaningful medium and talked about something that is absolutely horrific. Anna Quinn is a one-time New Yorker poetry editor and she was formerly the director of the Poetry Society of America and she began this work by collecting poems that arrived in her inbox. So some of them are by, you know, huge names that we would all know if we read any poetry, which is not me, and some of them are just by people who wrote to her um, and said, this is how I feel. And I worry that we don't have enough space for poetry as a reaction in this world. Yeah, you know, I am not as good on poetry as I am on other areas of literature and other forms, but I don't think that you should say, you know, everybody turns it off. I think we're getting better in Australia um, to not disregard poetry. And, you know, you just mentioned this collection that has an awesome title, like Together in a Sudden Strangeness. What an excellent description of... (laughs) of 2020 but that's so beautiful the idea of like individuals just writing to her and kind of expressing themselves and now you know she has the the reach and the the insight to kind of I don't know bring it together in a collection that feels like 
crowdsource poetry. Yeah, it does almost. And of course, it's also so incredibly varied in the work that she is bringing together because poetic forms are so varied in and of themselves, but also the content and experience of Americans through this pandemic has been varied as well. So she brings forward the idea of the experience of medical workers and people who are working in hospitals, but are in charge of taking bodies to a morgue and taking bodies to morgues that are too full to take them, right? There are authors who are looking at the Black Lives Matter movement. There are authors that are looking at how the inequalities in our society are so very much amplified by an event like this pandemic. And of course, there are people whose loved ones are dead or are dying. I think it's going to be an absolutely stunning work. And I think it's also going to help a lot of people process what's happened to them. Yeah, I, I really do think so too. I admire those who are writing and thinking and creating in this time of solitude. You know, we all know it's a crap year, but it is, I find it hopeful to read the work that people have been putting together during this time. It makes me feel like there is a future for all of us. And I'm really excited to ask you what on earth you've been doing because, Jam, you've somehow managed to pitch and write two books in 2020? Well, kind of, kind of. So the first one is a children's book and I have no business writing children's books, Astrid, but I have a five-year-old kid at home with me and I have a smart, empathetic, brave five-year-old kid who wanted to know what the hell was going on. So I wrote this book called I'm a Hero 2. It's coming out in November with Penguin and Peter Chong is the man who has done the most stunning illustrations and brought these characters to life. And For me, during this pandemic, a lot of the material for kids, both literature, television, whatever it might be, has kind of all focused on this spiky green ball with a smiley face sometimes. COVID's not smiley, folks. And I didn't want necessarily to talk to my son about the science. I wanted to talk to him about the feelings and I wanted to talk to him about grief and how his world has changed. But I wanted to talk to him in a really age-appropriate way. So I've created this book that's about a kid called Artie, who, whose whole little world shifts and turns on its axis, but then Artie moves to a place of empowerment and realises that Artie can be part of the solution and that Artie can wash their hands and make sure they don't touch things at the supermarket and also be really helpful to their parents by getting dressed quickly and things like that. Stuff I would love my own kid to do um, and can also be a hero. So my absolute hope is that this book can go into the world and help some little kids feel a bit more normal and a bit less scared and hopefully a bit more brave. Jam, I have no doubt your book will help little kids think that, but I am also planning to read your kid's book because I'm going to take all of the help that I can get this year in any written form. And if that comes in a kid's book with beautiful pictures, then I am in. And also I said before that I admire writers who are sharing and creating and thinking in this time. And I admire you too. I know we're on a podcast and I know we're friends and I, you know, but I don't need to say this and it's true. And I just think just really well done. Um, yeah, just well done. Oh, thank you. It has been an absolute joy. And of course, future women who are the creators of this podcast, the owners of this podcast, the people who make sure we get paid to be able to have these delightful conversations. Uh, Future Women is also releasing a book in, oh my God, one month's time called Untold Resilience, Stories of Courage, Survival and Love from Women Who Have Gone Before. And we will be telling you all about that book with one of the 
editors, Helen McCabe, later in this season. But I wanted to mention it now because I just sent the final final, final spell-checky grammar edits off to Penguin with an enormous thank you because this project has involved us interviewing 19 women who have lived through wars, pandemics, famines, floods, who've been refugees, who've lost children, lost parents, who've been through enormous global upheaval before and survived. And we have interviewed these women in their homes during lockdown and we are bringing their stories to a new generation who I think are going to learn a whole lot from them. And just on a personal note, it is the single best thing I have done in isolation is get to know these absolutely incredible, incredible women who would have been my girlfriends, I like to hope, had we been born into the same generation. I can't wait to read it, Jam. to try and keep our discussion of isolation as positive as we can possibly make it. So I want to ask, what are you reading for comfort? What is making you feel safe and secure and happy in isolation? You know, I just think a good piece of fiction is what makes me happy. And one of the books that I read a few years ago, I think I read it in 2018, and I find myself thinking about now and about to pick up is The Life to Come by Michelle de Kretzer. Now, Michelle de Kretzer is fantastic. Uh, It's great fiction. It's the kind of book that I want to snuggle up in bed or on the couch under a doona and just kind of forget the world and enjoy this story that she paints for me. And, you know, it's just this, it's a simple story of three different points of view set in Sydney, Paris and Colombo over the days of travel and, and seeing the rest of the world. And, you know, just thinking about people with different viewpoints, trying to figure out who they are and who they want to become and what they're doing with their life. And, you know, it just, it feels comforting to go back to Michelle de Kretz's world. Also, you know, she won the Miles Franklin for it. So, kudos to her as well. Usually suggests it was a pretty good book. Yeah. Mostly. What about you? I've got to say that beyond this podcast, because I am as not as a ferocious reader as you are, I have mostly been reading cookbooks. Um, (laughs) I am someone who cooks when I feel uncomfortable and sad. And while I've enjoyed reading for this podcast, I've wanted to switch off a little bit in between and just enjoy creating great food for my family and looking after them as much as I can in a way that is both healthy and more importantly delicious and as much as possible and I have been cooking non-stop from Ottolenghi flavor I am loving another one that is out called slow food worth taking time over which to me kind of speaks to this moment right I never had time to cook the way I am now. It's by someone called Gizzy Erskine and it it's like a it's like a cozy book, right? It's a it's it's a cookbook that kind of suggests that taking time, learning how to braise and bake and poach and roast and slow cook and get the most out of every flavor that that is something worth doing and it sort of values the process of cooking as much as it values the outcome. And then my my third one, because I can't help myself at the moment, is Falliston, a cookbook, which is by Tara Wigley and Sammy Tamimi. And it is a beautiful compendium of Palestinian recipes, but more than just the recipes, which are bloody delicious, I can promise you. It's full of stories of Palestinian people and Palestinian way of life. And the photographs are stunning. And it feels 
Feels like one of those trips across the world that we're not allowed to take, Astrid. For everybody listening, Jamila's face has lit up as she's been talking about these cookbooks. These obviously make you very, very happy, Jam. And I can't believe how productive you are in this time of social distance and isolation. You are cooking and writing and I am literally that person who ignores the world and reads under the covers of a doona. Well done, Jam. Ah, but well done to you because you are bringing those books to all of us on the podcast. Astrid, that is all we have got time for today. Thank you to all of you for being with us for the first episode of season two of Anonymous Was a Woman. Astrid and I will be back later this week. That's right, folks, for this season of Anonymous Was a Woman. We are bringing you two shorter episodes, but in total, more Anonymous Was a Woman. We will be interviewing the phenomenal Tara June Winch next Thursday. Tara is obviously a Wiradjuri author, born in Australia, but now based in Paris, France. And she'll be talking to us about solitude. And she will, of course, also be talking to us about her very recent Miles Franklin win for her novel, The Yield. We would love for you to subscribe to Anonymous Was a Woman. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you can take a moment to rate and review, that will help other people find the podcast. Thank you to Bad Producer Productions and to Future Women for making the podcast possible. See you next time. 